Welcome to the Humor in Games podcast, an analog and video games podcast about how humor is experienced, designed, and analyzed in games. We are Scott DeYoung, Mark Lajeunesse, and Andre Zanescu, and we'll be your guides in this six-episode series. Throughout each episode, we'll break down different theories and forms of humor. We'll draw on interviews with designers, critics, and academics as they discuss the different aspects of humor, their own lived experiences, and how their work utilizes humor in games. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Aaron Trammell from UC Irvine about the humor differences between tabletop and analog games and the challenges that come with humor at our gaming tables. Hi, uh, my name is Aaron Trammell. Um, I'm an assistant professor at UC Irvine. I'm also the editor-in-chief of the um, online journal Analog Game Studies. And um, my my work is um, looking at the way that uh, tabletop games and identity uh, intersect specifically around lines of race, class, and gender. I do a lot of writing on race. Um, I have two books coming out um, next year. Uh, the first is a history of hobbyists. And in this book, I trace hobby games back from model railroads at the turn of the 20th century um, to the sort of like booming board game scene today. And I look at how this is actually a story of how games have um, been a product of white culture in the white suburbs. Um, and uh, my other book is called Repair and Play, and it's a sort of approach to play, a theoretical approach to play that centers BIPOC people. So um, that's where my work has been recently. And um, I'm here to talk about uh, humor in games, because believe it or not, this intersects in, with this work in a bunch of different ways. I'm, I'm sure that'll become uh, a bit clearer as we go on, but I think there's definitely a lot of uh, you know space in the Venn diagram of the two spheres to, to talk about how uh, race and especially like constructions of race intersect with, with humor or however you feel. But I guess before we get into the heavy stuff, one of the things that we tend to ask our guests is, you know, is there a game or a moment in a game that you've played uh, that you find to be particularly humorous or that you'd like to signal for us? Yeah, well, I wanted to signal two things. Um, one, one was that I, I, I think about humor in games, <clears throat> well, I think it's funny in games, I think a little differently than what I think is funny in other things. Um, and so I was thinking about this because I like to think about music a lot. I, I love music. I, I got into critique um, through love of sound and music. And um, one of my favorite musicians is the artist Jonathan Richman, who um, is sort of like a pre-punk to post-punk figure. Um, and his story is really interesting, right? So he, he gets into music in this sort of like punk era and then after he releases this great sort of pre-punk album, when everybody, you know, starts then starting like a band that sounds like the Ramones, he kind of unplugs and just starts playing these like wacky acoustic songs about like being a mosquito or something. And um, in one of them, it's a love song. It's called Back in Your Life, where he's like imploring to a lost lover that he wants to be back in their life. Um, and it's a really heartfelt song where he's talking about like, walking through the fields and uh, making pancakes with his lover's parents. Um, there's this line and he says, you know, what he's talking about the seasons changing. He says, what once was a puppy is now a dog. And what once was a piglet is now a hog. Right. And I just think this is the best line, right? You, you see it coming from a mile off. It's such an ugly line. It's, it's, it's not a beautiful line about the seasons changing, but you, you hear it. The second you say you hear piglet, you're like, well, this has to go to, to hog, right? It's, it's got to go to the, the most, uh, you know, uh, dirty, um, gross animal that you can think of, right? Um, 
And it's part of this love song, right? And so, you know, in that way, humor can be really obvious. You see it coming from a mile away and you're like, it's, I guess that's going to happen. Um, and then it does happen. And that's the punchline. It's really funny. Um, but in games, I think it's, it's different sometimes because games don't tell punchlines always in the same way. So um, I was thinking about uh, one of my favorite role-playing games as an example of a game uh, that has a good sense of humor to it. Uh, and that's the game Fiasco, uh, which is a role-playing game, uh, which has a humorous conceit. Um, the conceit of Fiasco is that the, it's going to play out like a Coen Brothers movie. So the story that you're telling is going to collapse under its own weight by the time you get to the end of it, right? Like everything's going to kind of end up in disaster and it's just going to be um, a, a terrible situation by the end of Fiasco, um, right? Which is a funny conceit uh, to begin with, right? You see it coming from a mile off. But the way the building blocks of the game kind of build to this conceit, I've always thought was really funny because one of the best parts of playing a game of Fiasco is building your characters which means rolling a bunch of dice and selecting things from lists that are going to go between people, right? Like it'll be like an object from the list that we both possess. And that way we know this is a thing that we have in common. And so in these play sets, the humor is less about um, what's obvious and you see coming and more about the sort of strange things that the game designer can think about to build this world with. And so I'm just going to read a few of these. This is a, a play set about being in the Fiasco suburbs, just being a player in the suburbs. And these are objects that might be between our players and characters. Um, listed part one, unsavory objects, um, a broken police ankle monitor, night vision goggles and flexi cuffs, 100 feral cats, a desiccated corpse in a duct taped garbage bag, the charred ashes of $100,000 or a replica of James T. Kirk's command chair. This is great. These are all very different things. And this is by design. When you make these play sets, you have to be careful that everything is a very different use to it, right? But these are all by design. Not every one of these is going to be in the game every time you play it, but you will definitely get something crazy from this thing. And the, the list is, the list is, it's un, unrelenting. There's a list, of, there's six parts to this list of objects. You can also have sentimental objects. Um, bronzed baby shoes, a massive engagement rings, a battered set of golf clubs, a signed photo of an ex-president, an American flag, or an elaborate tombstone, right? And so you can imagine in any story you're gonna role play with any of these objects, you know, it's gonna be great. It's gonna be funny. There's an American flag there. Is this a joke about America? Is someone a patriot, right? There's a funny conceit in that second about it. Why did somebody bronze their baby shoes? Why do they have James T. Kirk's command share, right? And so this is the baseline foundation for the wackiness that kind of ensues in fiasco. And it does the same thing. There's locations and there's needs, right? Like you, your character might have a need. I'll just give you one more example. Um, so uh, your character might have a need uh, to get even. And, right, this is a... a classic characteristic, right? Like a revenge story. Six things that you might get from this need, of course, because you generate with six-sided dice. To get even with all the two-faced bastards who ruined you. To get even with the local drug dealer. To get even with the community policing officer, so kind of the rent-a-cop. To get even with a family member. To get even, and this is off color, so um, this is definitely written to be tongue-in-chief. 
with the quote dirty end quote immigrants or to get even with your old high school rival, right? And so all of these examples that they put into the game, all these really meticulously crafted examples that they put into the game are meant to kind of like build on a humorous imagination. The situations where you know the characters aren't good people and you know the conceit of the story is gonna be this conceit where that thing that you see coming in the future, um, right? That obvious thing in the future, the things are gonna fail. You know it's gonna fail, right? They're gonna get even with that high school rival. Okay, is that high school rival the one who has that American flag? We already see the story kind of building out that way. And so in that way, I think in games, right, where humor gets done in a really interesting way for me is where it builds on the sort of foundation of possibility. Um, whereas in other mediums, I don't think humor necessarily telegraphs itself the same way to uh, the listeners or the viewers. So um, anyways, great question. I gave you a really long answer to that. No, that's perfect. And it just reminds us that we should all be playing Fiasco, which has been like a, a game on the periphery of many discussions I've been around the university in the past couple of years. I guess we're going to be jumping a bit ahead of our order, but I'm curious. So Fiasco's um, primarily a tabletop game, but it has sort of uh, it, like tabletop in the TTRPG sense. So like um, sort of like Pathfinder, Dungeons and Dragons, but it has tabletop elements like board games, uh, the use of certain dice or the use of certain other objects. Um, and I suppose the real question is, uh, do you feel like tabletop games specifically fiasco or others deal with humor in different ways than digital games do i mean i mean, my my instinct is that yeah they do first i first i think tabletop games can be profoundly bad at being humorous so let's start there there are some very like there there's you know the 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 joke i tell people about tabletop games is um my my nephews came to stay last summer and i have a room i'm a huge board game fan and I have a room of all of my board games. My nephews are like uh, three and six respectively. So this game room and they're sleeping in it, right? Cause that's where the, the pullout couch is. And I'm like, okay, guys, these are grown up games. They're not fun. Don't touch them. Cause I don't want them pulling them off the shelves. Right. I don't want them, you know, maybe choking on the pieces. Uh, they're really unkid friendly in a lot of different ways. And, and that's just the start of it. Right. Like, you you play a game like Hansa Teutonica, which I'm probably mispronouncing, which is about uh, shipping uh, goods around a network of merchant guilds in like mid Renaissance Germany. And this is this is not a funny conceit for a game. Um, there's really no humor in the game as you basically figure out how to construct this network and move your 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 resources around. And so in that way, it's it's kind of profoundly unfunny. Um, right, like Carcassonne, which is known for a long time as a, a gateway game, is a game where um, you're just kind of building out these cities and castles and landscapes, and you're putting robbers and farmers on the road, and that's that's it. If if you think that's a funny conceit, I don't know what your sense of humor is, but it's it's a really dry conceit for a game um, in reality. So uh, that's not a funny game either. Settlers of Catan, the famous Settlers of Catan, right? Uh, here's a, a game that might have a little more humor. Um, there is a, an opportunity in Settlers of Catan to move the robber figure around and take money from someone else. So there's that that joke that that, that get that joke. Uh, sorry, take that joke, where you, you've uh, you've deprived someone of something and you can laugh at them. Or the other joke from Settlers of Catan is, you know, do you have any bricks or do you have any sheep? 
and no one wants to trade. So you're just sitting there asking the same question every single round until you finally get the thing you want. So, right, these are not funny games. These are not really humorous games. And so I think if Euro games were your sort of touchstone to tabletop gaming, you'd come around to them saying, well, this isn't really a humorous genre of game. Now, that said, I do think that there are some funny Euro games. I think there are some thematic designers who really play with humor in clever ways. One of my favorite is Vlada Shvatil, um, who has written, made the excellent game uh, Galaxy Trucker, uh, which is one of my favorites of all time. And in Galaxy Trucker, uh, the, 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 you know going into the game, this is going to be a fun game. It's going to be a funny game because you open up the rule book and it's written like it's Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. All of the gags are like, you're this trucker, you're trying not to get blown up. Can you make a? Can you build enough scrap to build this? You know, um, ramshackle galaxy truck to to make to, to ship enough scrap to to get another shipment through. So there's a sense in the the sort of uh, narrative of that game, right? That there's humor built in. And then when you play the game, actually the jokes are that things are going to fall apart. You're going to build this imperfect ship. It's going to get hit by an asteroid. It's going to break into at some point and you have to decide which side of the ship are you going to keep on flying and which is going to get blown off to space and that's been a really funny game to play with the right group of people because it's you know it's your own it's again that thing you saw from a mile off you you saw you put that piece into your ship that was really unstable but you're just trying to hold it together with some you know toothpicks and bubble gum and of course that thing that you put there to hold the ship together that's the thing that got hit by the asteroid. And so the ship that you knew was going to break into just broke into and ha ha, that's the joke that happens there. It's not the funniest joke, but it is a pretty funny joke and it's in a pretty humorous game. Um, Schwatil has another game called uh, Dungeon Pets, which is really fun. And in this game, you're um, he's got this whole elaborate system where you have these little pets that you raise from eggs and they're all monstrous, right? Like they have needs they need food they need play um they need magic um they need to be in cages so they don't hurt you etc uh right and so you they're all different also right so one might need a ton of food might one might need a lot of play one might be really violent exact etc and so the joke of this game is these these pets kind of grow and grow and grow and essentially you just can't you know maintain them anymore so you're like throwing imps at these cages to kind of take care of the pets and you know they get overwhelmed and it's a sort of humorous story with these you know lovely imp miniatures that can never handle all the the mess that's getting thrown at them they can't they can't maintain it you can't maintain it why did you take on this pet it's like being a real pet owner so he's got a good sense of humor in the games he makes i think they're they're fun and funny but by and large i don't know if um Analog games have the same sense of humor as digital games. So when I, you asked me the other half, right, which is how does it differ from digital games? Um, for, first off, I think this is going to differ to anybody who is listening, because I think we all have different senses of humor. And the, the thing that I think is funny might not be the thing that's funny for somebody else. Um, but I think about some of my favorite, most humorous games of all time being sort of point and click adventure games. Um, and I, you know, it depends on the different games that you're playing. Like I think the Lucas Arts games had a really different sense of humor than the Sierra games. Um, the Lucas Arts ones generally had more puns in the dialogue and were more playful in that regard. And the Sierra games 
again, did this sort of joke where it was like, your character died falling off the stairs for the 10th time in a row. Isn't that really funny? Um, and, you know, for me, I've got that sense of humor. I thought that was really funny growing up. Um, and I, I still kind of think it's funny that they do it, right? Because, again, I saw it coming a mile away. I knew I was going to die there. And I did die there. And that was a frustrating part of the game that made me laugh. Um, but, the you know, the wordplay can be really fun, also, funny also. And so I always get a kick out of those two things, I think, right? That, that joke I've been telling since the beginning of this podcast, the thing you saw from a mile off. But also the wordplay, right? Like the 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 piglet and hog is also wordplay, and that's why the joke works in that song. So, uh, yeah, again, a rambling answer, but I guess a little different in both contexts in some regards, um, especially because tabletop games, hobby games, tend to be a little more uh, dry. And you know, it's only the the designers who really lean into the theming who I think can pull out the humor in those games. Yeah. So. One of the things that you're drawing attention to is really that uh, a lot of digital games have this sort of embedded humor that might be part of the mechanics, and sometimes you see that in analog games. But also, um, analog games have a very rich tabletop social experience, right? And I think this is a maybe a good place to ask you about how your work uh, might dovetail with uh, questions about humor given how much you've written about Magic the Gathering social spaces and uh, D&D and assorted uh, tabletop and analog uh, social settings, I guess. Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I do think you're right. So I'm picking up on a lot of single player humor here, right? Like I'm, I'm picking up what it means to read the rules to Galaxy Truck or what it means to read the rules to Dungeon Pets, to read the Fiasco rule book. And I think, you know, one of the, the big parts of humor for a lot of people in tabletop games and the thing that makes them a little different from a lot of digital games is that they are played in social settings and there's um, a sort of laugh that happens there um, in the setting more broadly. Um, and, you know, you see this in other digital social games also. For example, uh, the Jackbox games, which are kind of like tabletop games, but on your TV screen, um, are really good at getting the sort of like social humor going. Those in-jokes in a crowd they're good at kind of figuring out what that joke is between a group of friends and getting people to laugh about it and have a good gag around it. And they're really fun for that reason. And in a similar way, um, when you play a game like uh, Mafia or Werewolf or a social deduction game that where the interaction is really about talking to the other people at the table with you, um, I think tabletop games actually are really excellent conduits of humor um, because they play on those sort of social dynamics that make us laugh. Even Fiasco, going through that rule set, right? You know, um, when you get that James T. Kirk chair, that's gonna fall, that's gonna be hilarious for some groups, but it's gonna fall flat for other groups. And that's why it has that sort of rich example of a list going on in it, right? Because the group knows what's funny for it and the group can then self-select into the kind of humor that they wanna play with or against. And so I think that's an important thing um, happening in those spaces. But your question here is about my research and where this comes into my research. And so I can talk ad nauseum about games I love because um, I, I feel playing games in some sense is a kind of games research. Um, but more specifically, I, I, I do a lot of historical work. And so I think um, one of the places it's come into my research is looking at some fan communities where humor has become an object of contestation. Um, and so this happened a lot in um, uh, 
the old diplomacy wargaming community. So I've read extensively many of the diplomacy wargazines out there looking to see what the politics of the group, these groups are and what the dynamics between friends of these groups were. And in some of them, there's a group uh, publishing circuit um, that happened in the 1970s called the New York Conspiracy. It was, you know, fans of diplomacy who play games of diplomacy. Um, and the fans were mostly clustered in sort of like New York, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, um, tri-state area, more than tri-state area, but, you know, generally the New York area. So they called themselves the New York Conspiracy. They're diplomacy players and they sent fanzines to each other um, to kind of play these games of diplomacy. Um, and the story goes that in some of these fanzines, um, many of the people in the New York Conspiracy uh, and again, these were like 18, 16, 20-year-old people communicating with each other, each other, you know, started playing into sort of off-color sense of humor, right? Like using hate speech as humor, the sort of thing that you might expect a game like Cards Against Humanity would ask its players to look at for humor. And I think this is where it gets a little dicey, right? Because in this group, you had a bunch of presumably white men um, making jokes at the expense of, you know, um, people of color, uh, gay people, women in the group, et cetera, teasing, you know, using hate speech, uh, lots of words I wouldn't care to repeat in this podcast to joke about them. And then saying when criticized or, you know, someone say, hey, please don't use language like this. Um, and then saying to folks in those moments, um, hey, um, uh, we should be allowed to speak like this because it, we're just having some fun. It's, it's just fun. Um, and I think this is where humor in tabletop games, or at least in the research I've done, becomes a little more problematic, because you can see, first of all, this is replicating, or I guess maybe laying a foundation for the sort of trollish humor we see on the internet today, the stuff the alt-right really has a field day with, um, and uses uh, fault, things like false equivalence um, to say, well, we should be able to say this because it's equivalent to saying that, right, when the two things aren't actually equivalent. Um, but also because I think that these are sort of perennial conversations that happen within gaming. These are the sort of things that happen in chat rooms and digital games all the time. Um, and these are things that have happened in fanzines for not just diplomacy, but other games all the time. And the thing that happens with this that I think is really sort of insidious is that um, it becomes a barrier of entry for minoritized people who are interested in playing games. It becomes a sort of thing where maybe in that group it's okay. And maybe, you know, in this example of diplomacy, um, the folks who uh, said, please don't do this anymore, they kept being friends. They kept on playing diplomacy with each other. You know, the games didn't get shut down or anything like that. Um, and the, some of the hate speech continued. But the thing that happened that's really, I think, should be concerning for anybody who is a fan of games is that that circle didn't broaden. It didn't widen. It didn't grow to be a circle where more people could get kind of involved in the conversation. And so I think that's where sort of in my research, you see humor being a sort of um, tricky thing, um, especially as people try to navigate sort of off color humor and make a space for that in their games, um, because that's the sort of thing that's not funny to everybody. And when something's not funny to something, someone, uh, if you're like me, I'm, I'm black, right? That's, that's a group I'm not going to want to play with. That's a game I'm not going to want to play because it, it's suddenly saying, well, this isn't for you. This joke isn't for you. Um, Right, just like I could imagine somebody reading that one line from this fiasco game and interpreting it in a really cynical way um, and playing into that instead of against that and that becoming a group that, you know, 
is not for other uh, people, et cetera, right? Someone who doesn't get that joke totally. So some thoughts there. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, th this idea of the um, like humor as a foreclosing uh, phenomenon, so creating in and out groups, uh, I think has come up in the previous season of the show with some of our, our guests as well. Um, part of what I'd like to ask you about is uh, in in the analog game space, do you think that the formation of these groups is also inflected by different analog game technologies? So, for example, card games versus uh, TTRPGs, or maybe even LARPing, for example, or is humor kind of a more like a technology agnostic phenomenon? That's a good question. Um, I think it's definitely inflected by the different technologies um but i wouldn't list them by genre quite the way you're listing them um so uh right I, I guess i assume that what you mean by technology here is that a card game is different than a tabletop role-playing game is different from a board game like ticket to ride um and i i agree with you broadly about that that there is difference in all these things and the way humor presents in all of these things um i guess i would just go more specific because i think that a game like cards against humanity is very different than a game like Magic the Gathering. Um, they have, they, they're more specific within the genres that they're trying to play into than just cards or tabletop, right? Like Cards Against Humanity is like a social game. It's a party game, like Apples to Apples before it, right? Which it, it kind of ripped off. Um, it's a social game. It's a party game. It asks people to get around. And the fun of the game is the humor in the box. Whereas something like Magic the Gathering is a strategic game. Some people might find a way to play it more socially, but the, the game itself is more strategic. Um, and the jokes in Magic the Gathering are told in a different way than the jokes in a game like Cards Against Humanity are for that reason. Cards Against Humanity puts a lot of burden on the player at the table to moderate their experience with the game. Um, if you're playing that game, there's going to be um, uh, you know, a sensibility you have to have right, about what is appropriate jokes to make and what's not. Um, uh, if you're in a group, right, where you recognize that you're at a diverse table, it's going to be really off color to make a race joke because, um, you know, people are going to get hurt by that um, or they're going to hear it in a hurtful way. Whereas in a sort of homogenous group setting uh, where there are, you know, maybe all white people at the table, that race joke might land in a very different way and that group might get it. And so that, you know, in the, that sense, that game relies a lot on the group. Um, Magic the Gathering on the other hand, which is a game I adore, um, uh, uses humor in its flavor text. I think this is one of the primary places that they use humor. And they also sometimes do mechanical jokes in some of their sets. They do um, kind of special sets occasionally where they kind of loosen their belt and they throw out some rules and they'll do some things that they couldn't do in the other sets. And those are the jokes, right? So in Magic the Gathering, right, there's goblins. And we know goblins in the world of Magic the Gathering are silly. Um, they're not that smart. And they're going to do things that are kind of foolish. And so the joke in Magic the Gathering is about the goblin in the flavor text, like, you know, um, running into another group of enemies with a bomb, not thinking it's gonna die. And that's funny, right? Because you know that this is what a goblin is in Magic the Gathering, and this is how goblins operate. That's the joke, is that the, the goblins are basically cannon fodder and they're silly. Um, 
Um, whereas the mechanical jokes that Magic the Gathering tells are more like, um, here's two cards, and if you got both of the cards in your deck, you could put them together into a bigger card. And even the title on the top of the cards is now like 10 words long, and it spans both cards. And so it all works together, and that's funny, because look at how we can combine cards in a way you didn't expect us to combine cards before. Um, and so, and that's just an easy example of how that kind of works. Um, but humor in that game is very different, I think, than humor in a game like Cards Against Humanity, right? And again, we can get back to the single player versus multiplayer. In Magic, the single player mode of humor is reading those cards, looking at these things, thinking about how these systems operate together in humorous ways. Whereas in Cards Against Humanity, it's multiplayer. Um, the one thing I would say with Magic, though, is that the single player card humor does extend to the tabletop culture of people who play it. So it wouldn't be odd for somebody who gets a kick out of the sort of goblin humor in Magic to make a goblin deck and then to make jokes about their goblins while they're playing other people in, the, the, in a game, right? Because the deck is then so thematically linked to that kind of character that you can tell jokes about it. So, right, that's two examples of game humor working in similar apparently similar technologies, techniques, um, but two things that have very different kinds of results for how that humor actually plays out with the table. Yeah. So, I mean, that really creates a multi-layered system, right, for considering humor in terms of sort of analog digital, but also context, context of how the game is made and what its rules are, but also the tabletop space and who's playing. So that creates like a, lot of layers to consider uh, in terms of how humor is functioning there. Yeah, I think um, I, I think you need to, I think if you're going to be a humorous designer of anything, right, you need to, to have an awareness of these layers and to have some awareness of like how you're playing in to these layers and who is going to be receiving it on the other end, right, and what jokes that they kind of get versus don't get. Um, I, I have a very dry sense of humor, and I will tell a joke almost every single day that somebody won't get because it's too dry. Um, and I guess that's just the pain of being a person with a dry sense of humor. Um, but those who get it really get it. You know, they really get it. Absolutely. Um, as we reach the end of our sort of half hour mark uh, and we're wrapping up, the one thing I would like to ask you about that we haven't touched on yet is uh, your uh, tenure as co-editor for Analog Game Studies, which I think started in 2014. Um, do you find that, you know, working uh, on the journal and seeing all these different voices uh, cover analog games has uh, changed your thoughts uh, on humor or provided uh, new avenues for exploration? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, so first off, I am editor-in-chief of Analog Game Studies at the moment, um, but we did start as a co-founded co-editorship relationship. And honestly, we do share a lot of the responsibilities still. So um, it's a, it, it's more of an administrative title than anything else. Um, uh, that said, um, yeah, a lot of different um, articles come over uh, the table and I th there's two things that I'm thinking about in terms of like humor here. So I think the first is the question you asked me, which is, um, has that helped me look at analog games in a different way, kind of thinking about the humor? Um, absolutely. Um, I, I, one of the things that I think we've been successful with with analog game studies is opening up the sort of conversation around analog games more broadly and thinking about 
the cultures that are attached to them. Now, one thing that has not really happened is people writing articles about humor in analog games. So that's that's a, a sort of article we'd love more of if any listeners out there have a pitch or an idea of an article that they'd like to write. Um, that sounds exciting. Uh, we'd love to publish that. Um, we just haven't yet, so uh, get in touch. Um, but it's been good for thinking analytically about how many different kinds of games there are out there. Um, we knew this going in, but I think since starting to do the journal, we've all been exposed to just what the breadth of these different areas was. You know, when we started the journal, there's a lot of energy around role-playing games. Um, and the board game thing that was happening was booming. It was happening with Kickstarter and stuff, but I don't think anybody dreamed board games would get as big as they've gotten right now. And I'm expecting that there'll be more games of this sort that we just don't expect coming up in the, the years ahead, right? Like uh, the board games blew up and D&D 5th edition has blown up, right? Because of Critical Role and all these other things. And I think you see all that, right? And that's something we haven't even touched on is Critical Role and the way Critical Role uses humor and how actual play um, performers use humor as a way to bring viewers into their, their performances of different tabletop games. So that's a big thing. Um, the other thing that happens that I would note as an editor is that sometimes authors try to use humor in their, I'd say, more analytical writing. And this is something that I don't always feel lands. So it's not something that we necessarily would take out of an essay if an author you know, wants to open or close with a joke. I just think that the genre of academic writing is a very dry genre of writing and it's very difficult to use humor in this genre effectively. And so I've seen people try to make jokes, sort of pithy jokes here or there in their writing. And I personally never feel like these jokes land. They're not the sort of things I don't want to publish. I'm like, yeah, you do you. If that's your authorial voice, use it. Um, but I don't necessarily think they land. And also because we're writing in a cultural space, a lot of articles that go up are open for critique from like, the world more broadly. And this is the sort of thing that I think trolls can really glom onto, right? Is, and see as weakness or um, try to juxtapose what their stereotype of the buttoned up stuffy academic research should look like, think social science is there, um, and then say, well, this can't be serious if they're making jokes in this as well. And so for a number of these reasons, I don't always feel like jokes and writing land as well as they could. And I'm a person who really likes colorful writing. Um, I don't like dry writing, but I just don't feel like jokes kind of fit there. So that's a, an aside on humor, but just a thought from an editorial standpoint in that way. This was our interview with Dr. Aaron Trammell. Thanks for listening and see you next time on the Humor and Games podcast.